0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 53, In Like a Bear, Out Like a Bull, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of January 27th. And remember, when it comes to interest rates, less really is more. I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, why are we so close to the bottom of the range? Ben, if I had the answer to that question, this podcast would have a much shorter duration. I see what you did there. Not bad for government bond work. Nonetheless, we're at the lower end of the trading range in terms of 10-year yields. The operative zone, as January has played out, has proven to be effectively 170 to 190. We're against the lower bound, which is somewhat concerning, not because we've had a bullish run in treasuries. After all, we tend to err on the side of expecting rates to be lower by the end of the year. We're retaining our year in 2020 call for 150 10-year yields with a good probability that sometime in the third or fourth quarter, we see record low 10-year yields established once again. That's largely in line with the traditional seasonal patterns in the treasury market and also reflects this notion that any optimism that we bring into the end of the year will ultimately run up against the realities of the economic data cycle and the fact that despite the Fed's effort, there's very little that monetary policy can do at this stage to break growth out into a higher plateau, and if anything, Powell and company are hoping to simply extend the current expansion. The biggest wild card in this context remains the elections and how equity markets and risk assets ultimately trade whomever emerges as the front runner for the White House. More immediately, we're watching the yield curve continue to flatten Two stins made it as low as 21 basis points, which has continued to be something of a line in the sand when we contemplate how far we would expect the curve to move before we see investors come in and, at least from a tactical perspective, put on the steepener. Nonetheless, and frankly taking a pretty big step back for the next four or five months until the Fed is actually in play, we simply expect the shape of the yield curve to be a directional trade. After all, the front end will be anchored to Fed expectations, and the Fed will surely keep policy rates on hold for the first several meetings of 2020. This week, the Treasury market also benefited from the headlines related to the coronavirus, and we're certainly sympathetic to the flight to quality notion associated with this, particularly when we put it in the context of SARS, which in 2003 was responsible for a significant rally in treasuries. Now, there were other factors going on at that time, and the outright level of yields was much higher. Nonetheless, as a bullish impulse for treasuries, it's very clear that the global economic uncertainties created from the situation have had a real influence on investors' expectations for the coming months. Longest short week ever. That's a fact. We did have a truncated trading week in the Treasury market. However, we did see a relatively sharp move. Whether it was the new concerns with the coronavirus or some of the new information coming out of the Treasury Department, there was plenty of trading impetus. And what's fascinating to me is the fact that we continue to drift back toward the lower end of the trading range in terms of 10-year yields, or at least ostensibly most of the underlying fundamentals would suggest that we should have an upward bias on Treasury rates at this point in the year, if anything. Part of that story is, of course, that the equity market strength continues. Year-to-date, the S&P 500 is up roughly 3%, give or take, and that would suggest that we would see some reversal of the flight to quality in Treasuries. But alas, with 10-year yields closer to 170 than to 190, we continue to watch a coiling within the rates market that we suspect will break out in one direction or another in the coming week or week and a half. The Fed is important in this context. And as we look forward to the January FOMC meeting, we can't help but think investors might simply be waiting the passage of that risk event to take on bigger positions. So,
2: Ian, what do you make of the divergence between rates and equities thus far this year? If I go back to Q4 of last year, it was pretty natural that you'd see upward pressure on both rates and equities due to progress on the trade front, diminishing recession fears, and the stimulative impact of the Fed cutting. So in Q4, we saw both drift higher But year to date, we've seen a divergence emerge where equities just continue to go up and to the right, whereas that coiling effect that we've seen in rates seems unshakable for now. And the other thing I'd point out is the reasons in my mind why 10-year yields haven't seriously challenged 2% thus far this year, whether it's the Iran flight to quality, the coronavirus flight to quality, underwhelming inflation data, some concerning signs in the leading indices, dot, dot, dot
0: none of those should be stimulative for equity. So how should we think about this divergence? While historically we do tend to see equity market performance coming at the detriment of treasuries, i.e. higher yields and higher stock prices, I think it's important to put this in a specific context. And that context is when there are inflection points in monetary policy or even the economic outlook, we tend to see that traditional correlation break down. And by that, I simply mean there are moments in which Bad news for the economy is good news for the equity market simply because it implies easier monetary policy and or lower nominal rates. And that might have been part of the underlying story as this year got underway. On the other hand, and I think that this is also a valid argument, the equity market was pushed higher by reasonable earnings performance. The earnings season wasn't universally strong, but it was good enough, as has been the theme in the equity market for the last couple years. The melt-up in equities might have been far more dramatic had we not had the flight-to-quality and geopolitical concerns that we saw earlier this year. So the counterfactual really matters here because without all of the risk-off headlines that we saw in the beginning of January, equity prices might be even higher. I like that
2: way of thinking, and a follow-up question I guess I'd have is we've seen the run-up in equities push the financial conditions to its easiest since February 2018, and by all measures, financial conditions are really quite accommodative. The concern I have at this moment, though, is if you look at inflation compensation in the treasury market, it's still very, very modest. So you have financial markets saying, yes, Fed, we think you can push up asset prices via these cuts, but we still don't think you can generate sustained inflation. Is this a mispricing or do
0: you think that this is a prudent outlook for the next 5, 10, 30 years? Well, monetary policy, not only in the U.S., but also globally, has really struggled to generate the type of demand-side inflation that economists would traditionally like to see. They've done a very good job in creating asset price inflation, but that hasn't historically been linked with the type of economic growth that monetary policy is attempting to achieve. I think it's fascinating that we have now seen the ECB shift to reevaluate their framework for monetary policy, similar to the process that the Fed started a couple years ago. Now, we haven't seen a decided change in policy or a new framework implemented, but presumably, whether it's the ECB or the Fed, the takeaway from this process will be lower for longer and more stimulative. Because if the current monetary policy regimes have been unable to stimulate upside risks for inflation, the fact of the matter is something does need to change.
2: And when I think about what can change, there are really only three buckets that I theoretically can have come to mind. One is on the price of money side, i.e. interest rates. Well, the ECB is already cut into negative and arguably is at the effect of lower bound. The second is the quantity side. Well, that's quantitative easing. They're already buying asset purchases. So in a traditional macro thought, you already have the price and quantity taken care of. Well, the only final thing that could come to mind is something on the macroprudential policy, a shift in the regulatory environment that frees up capital and allows for more risk taking. It's not obvious that there is a big demand to roll back any of the Basel framework. So it's going to be very interesting what comes out of these processes, because right now the answer just seems to be, well, we went low interest rates for a long time and didn't get inflation. Maybe we should just have
0: lower interest rates for a longer time, and I'm sure it'll come around. Well, then there's also the argument that monetary policy has reached the limit of what it's going to be able to do, and the baton needs to be passed to the fiscal side. That's certainly something that we've heard several times from the Fed, we've heard it from the ECB, and I might argue that at the beginning of Trump's term, we saw a perfect GOP storm that led to tax reforms reflationary ambitions and we ultimately saw that translate through to higher treasury yields a bid for equities and what was hoped at least at the time would be a recasting of the domestic production sector to presumably a higher plateau now obviously those ambitions have come and gone and we find ourselves in a not remarkably dissimilar place to where we were four years ago nonetheless at some point the onus does eventually come back to the fiscal side.
2: So the net takeaway is we should put less faith in the technocrats at central banks and more faith in the politicians and the fiscal side
0: of the House? That's a super comforting thought. On the contrary, John, what I was saying is that the elected officials need to take a little bit more direction from the central bankers and those in charge of monetary policy when it comes to the advice on how to stimulate growth in the real economy.
3: And the focus on the political situation is a nice segue into what we can expect after next week's Fed meeting. I mean, it's hard to believe, but the Iowa caucuses are on February 3rd, which is going to be the first real, i.e. non-polling gauge of how A, the race for the Democratic nomination is shaking out, and B, the prospects of whoever the nominee ends up being in beating Trump. And in this regard, there's sort of two different ways that we've been thinking about how the market will trade any new information. And that is the growth negative worries that are inspired by the traditionally more liberal policies that have been proposed. But there's also the degree of nuance, which is the electability of whoever ends up being chosen versus Trump's White House. And here, the risk-on, risk-off impulse could very quickly swing from a duration grab on the worries that anti-business policies will weigh on growth versus the chance that, oh, given the current economic situation, there's no way this person will ever beat Trump in November.
0: So what you're essentially saying is that if an extreme left candidate, call it a Warren or Sanders ends up taking the nomination that might ultimately be good for risk assets because the polarizing aspect of that might actually increase the perception that Trump will win the election.
3: Exactly. And here historical context is valuable, and this is a point we've brought up before, but since 1900, no president seeking re-election without a recession in the final two years of their first terms has failed. So said differently, if we don't see a recession the next 10 months, precedent would suggest that the strength of the economy we've seen during President Trump's first term gives him a very strong chance of winning another four years.
2: And when I'm thinking about the Iowa caucuses, one of the things that'll be really interesting to keep in mind is that just because someone is the front runner in Iowa doesn't necessarily imply that they're going to win the actual nomination. For example, if I look back at the Republicans over the past three Iowa caucuses, In 2008, 2012, and 2016, the winners of the Iowa caucuses were Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, and Ted Cruz, none of whom went on to win their party's actual nomination. So what I think will be interesting here is whichever Democrat does come out on top, this is a tailwind for their candidacy, but it's far from a done deal. In other words, we're going to be talking about this for quite some time. And while the election season kicks off with Iowa, this process is going to drag out for months
0: even running the risk of a contested or brokered convention in July. Okay, so now that we can conclude that what happens in Iowa stays in Iowa, what does this mean for risk assets between now and November? Our baseline assumption continues to be that the higher the likelihood or the perception of the likelihood that the Democrats take the White House, the poorer that's going to be for the equity market and vice versa. So as a heuristic going forward... That's something that is important to keep in mind.
3: And continuing in the vein of things going on in Washington, Secretary Mnuchin did confirm that, unfortunately, ultra-long bonds
0: are being tabled for the time being. Unfortunately? Well, we never really thought that there was a chance that an ultra-long bond came to fruition in this administration. Perhaps one day we will see a 50-year or 100-year But for the time being, Minutian has confirmed that Minutians are off the table. And instead, we're going to get 20-year issuance. I think this is a prudent point on the
2: curve to be issuing into. There's a very natural structural demand that can absorb large consistent supply over the quarters going forward. So I think this is a reasonable and responsible step for Treasury to fund ever-increasing deficits. One other thing that I'd point out is ultra longs are going to be back in vogue and people are going to get excited about them at some point in the future. One of the dynamics that you see at the U.S. Treasury is as staff rolls over with different administrations, new staff comes in and they want to make their mark. They want to do something exciting and help transform and evolve the market What I would expect basically with every administration going forward is new people come in and they ask, hey, have you kicked the tires on ultralongs lately? This is something we'd like to look into, especially in the era of structurally low rates. I think this topic is going to continue to come back. I still don't think they necessarily go forward, but the point I guess I'm trying to make is a couple years from now expect ultra longs to be back in the conversation about
0: another potential funding vehicle. What does the introduction of the 20-year actually look like? We haven't talked very much about that, and there are some implications for the shape of the yield curve, although a uh, 20-year is a natural deliverable into the classic bond contract.
3: So in terms of timing, it seems that Treasury will want to align issuance with 10s and 30s, so that means refundings in February, May, August, and November, with two subsequent reopenings. In regards to timing within the month, previous suggestions from t have pointed to the third week of the month, typically when we see tips auctions, and an end-of-month settlement, but a mid-month
0: coupon payment to align those cash flows with the other bigger
3: duration securities.
0: So essentially what you're saying is that Mnuchin just put the fun back in refunding. Precisely. I thought it was the Mac back in macro. Well, hopefully it's the interest back in interest rates. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have a lot of fundamental information to inspire trading direction. The biggest question from our perspective is whether or not the market will actually take those cues. Between new home sales, durable goods, core PCE, as well as the first look at first quarter GDP, the macro narrative will either be confirmed. Challenged, or as has been the case recently, been offered a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. More importantly, though, will be the FOMC. The Fed is expected to keep the target range for Fed funds stable, although there is a good chance that the rate of interest on excess reserves is increased by five basis points to ensure that the effective Fed funds rate remains within the desired ban. The challenge that Powell will have is transitioning more effectively into a period where policy is on hold. Looking at Fed Funds Futures pricing and OIS and the dynamics in the market, it's very clear that no one is expecting a rate cut or a rate hike anytime soon. However, what we don't know is how the fed is going to spin the current economic situation some of the headwinds and the uncertainties have been removed since the last meeting the phase one deal between china and the u.s on the trade front has been reached and signed while it certainly isn't the grand compromise that many on both sides might have been hoping for it does remove a degree of uncertainty and allows for business sentiment to bounce off the lows which is certainly a dynamic that we have seen play out in Europe, where recently we saw increases in the manufacturing PMI levels of Germany, France, the UK, and the Eurozone overall. As a theme, if anything out of the FOMC, we're going to be looking for increased economic optimism with an acknowledgement that inflation remains stubbornly low. The committee's take on pricing pressures is important, not only because of the lack of upward pressure on inflation, but also because the Fed is actively laying the groundwork to cut rates sometime in the latter half of 2020 in the event that inflation doesn't pick up. Very typical this late in an expansion cycle to see wage growth ultimately translate through to demand-side inflation, and the fact that that hasn't yet occurred continues to perplex many in the market. In terms of trading the range in treasuries, we remain biased to see upward movement in 10-year yields. 170 is a level of obvious resistance as it marks the lower bound for this year's trading. And on the flip side, we'll be targeting a backup north of 185 as we move past the Fed and month-end influences and start to consider both supply and the seasonal tendencies in the treasury market. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as we navigate the intricacies of modern office life, we're reminded of these infallible bits of wisdom. 1. Fish is not meant for communal microwaves. 2. The printer tray should be considered a public forum. And 3. Use Reply All with great care. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingan at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.